In your Bible, the book of Luke today, chapter number 14, Luke chapter 14, and I'm preaching this morning from verses 16 through 24, and the Lord willing, tonight I want to speak uh, the, on the rest of the chapter, verses 25 through 35, and it's really, really an extremely important passage of Scripture, an important text for a number of reasons. This morning, the subject is the Great Supper, the call to salvation. And then tonight, I want to speak on the call to discipleship, but I want to gear it in a specific direction. In the last 40, 45 years across America, there's been a great controversy. Does a person have to make Christ Lord of their life when they receive Christ to be saved, or can you be saved and not have Christ as the Lord of your life at the moment of salvation? The the controversy was called Lordship Salvation. And to laymen, you don't hear about that kind of thing like I do, but it has really been a major, major controversy. It's an important subject. I hope you'll be here tonight. It's going to be raining but uh, come anyhow, get you an umbrella this afternoon. Come on, because it's really important that you understand that, that aspect of our faith. Now, if you'll stand with me, Luke chapter 14, and we're looking at verse 16, please. Then said he unto them, a certain man made a great supper, and he bade, old-fashioned word for invited. He invited many. And he sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first one said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground. I must needs go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. Another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. And so that servant came and showed his Lord these things. And then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in here, hither the poor, the maimed, the halt, and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and Yet there is room. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. Thank you, and you may be seated. The setting here begins in verse 1 of chapter 14. It came to pass... As Jesus went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day, that they watched him. And the idea of them watching him is that this is a tense situation. They're watching him trying to find fault in the Lord Jesus Christ and seeking to discredit him. And so a man shows up at that meal that day who has a disease and The Lord Jesus Christ, first of all, heals him. The Pharisees don't like that. They didn't want anybody healed on the Sabbath. 
And then there's a conversation that begins among the group that are gathered there. And the Lord talks to them about humility. And the Pharisees were notorious for this. They wanted the seat of honor in every house. And so they would, they would just push people aside to go and get in the seat nearest the host or to be with the important people, with, with the cool people. I see that today, that there are people who they, they just, at, at some occasion, they just push their way forward. They want to be prominent. Jesus lectured them about that and said, don't do that. You're to have a humble spirit. Be willing to take the lowest seat in the house, and uh, you'll, be, you'll be pleasing me if you do that. And so after he had talked to them about humility, he speaks to them and gives this parable. It's the 30th parable, the 30th parable in the book of Luke. And the Lord speaks to them in the parable called the Great Supper, the Great Supper. It is one of the greatest of the parables. I mean, it's just, it's just chock full of gospel truth. I hope that you have already studied it. I hope and I would think that you're probably familiar with it, at least to some degree. The reason it's so great is in it we see the grace of God. We see that God cares about everybody. We see His love for all types and kinds of people, all socioeconomic levels. We also see in here His urgency that the whole world know that every single person has an invitation to come to Christ and with the hope that they will, in fact, respond. And so my first point to you today is to show you that in this parable, the Great Supper, there is an invitation to salvation, an invitation to salvation. Now, let me explain the parable. Let's interpret it here. And this is a very consistent interpretation that squares with the rest of, of Scripture because when we interpret, we never just make up what these figures represent. We always compare them with other figures throughout the Bible. And you'll see in verse number 16 a reference to a certain man, a certain man. And that man represents God, God the Father, if you will. And then we go down to verse number 21, and there's a reference to the master, but the master is the same person as the certain man. So he also represents God, the man and the master. The supper itself represents salvation. Throughout the Bible, often the gospel and the plan of salvation is represented by food. Come all ye that hunger, Isaiah said. And uh, Jesus said, I am the bread of life, come to me. He said, I am the living water. If any man thirst, let him come to me. Isaiah said, come now and buy wine and buy bread with no price. It's free to you. All the way through the Bible, we, we repeatedly see these references, these metaphors, these analogies to the gospel being like a meal, that we are hungry people spiritually. And we come to the feast. We come to the supper. We come to the meal. And when we come, 
we are satisfied. We have our empty, our, our spiritual emptiness is filled. Our hunger is satisfied. Our, our thirst is slacked. And so this analogy goes all the way through the Bible. So the supper represents salvation. It represents the gospel. I want you to notice, too, that the supper is free. It's provided by grace. It's not given to just people who deserve it. It's not given to anybody who has earned it. It is without charge. It is without price. The man himself has provided the supper. The master has provided the supper. And so we receive it by his grace. It is the grace that is found in his heart that offers us free of charge, unmerited, unearned, undeserved. He offers us this great gospel feast, if you will. Notice with me the servant here in verse number 17. He sends his servant. The serpent, servant really has two metaphors used throughout the Bible. The first one is the Holy Spirit himself. The Holy Spirit is pictured in the Bible as being the one who goes and he speaks to unsaved people. He woos them. He draws them. There's different words used throughout the Scripture. But it's the Holy Spirit who goes on behalf of the Heavenly Father and on behalf of Jesus Christ to draw the unsaved world to himself. But also, we are called the servants of the Lord. And so we're charged here with the same responsibility. And so it is our mission, just as it is the mission of the Holy Spirit, to invite the lost world to Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit goes a spiritual being. He goes unseen. He brings conviction of sin upon people as they hear the gospel. He tugs at their heart. He convinces them in their minds of their need for the Savior. But there's a human side to salvation as well. And so we are to go and to take the gospel to people and to plead with them for their souls, even as our Savior himself did. And so our mission is to join with, to partner with the Holy Spirit in seeking to bring people to Christ. In verse 17, you see the message that we're to take, the message, and it's an invitation. In verse number 17, it's simply this, come for all things are now ready. The supper is prepared. It's hot on the table, if you will. Soup's on, as my mother used to say sometimes. And what she's saying is, supper is ready. It's completed. On the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ bowed his head, and he said, it is finished. And what he meant by that is that everything is prepared for a person to partake of that gospel feast, of that supper. Everything has been done necessary for the salvation of mankind. And then there's a goal that they had, that the servant had. In verse number 23, he said that the Lord or the master wanted his house full. If you look down in verse 23, compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. The master wanted every seat at that table occupied. 
And Jesus himself said it like this in John 14. In my Father's house are many mansions. What Jesus was saying is there's plenty of room in heaven, and I want every single person to come. In fact, the Lord usually used this term, whosoever will may come. Whosoever will. That that includes everybody. There's nobody excluded. And so back in verse 16, the man made a great supper, and he invited many people. The message of the preacher ought to always be, you're invited to the supper. You're invited to come to the Lord Jesus Christ and to receive him as your Savior. So we see an invitation to salvation here. Number two with me, I want you to note the response of the people who were invited. I want you to notice the response of the invited. Beginning in verse number 16, he invited many. And it doesn't say it specifically, but it certainly infers it here. Multitudes of people may have been invited. That may have been a huge gathering. It, it, it infers that it was. But here's what it also infers that the people who were invited initially agreed to come. They said yes to the invitation, at least when it was first given to them. But now they're beginning to withdraw, and they're beginning to reject the offer. And as this servant goes out, he notices that the people who initially told him, yes, we will come, well, they're not coming. And verse 18 gives us, their specific responses. Look with me in your Bible. They all with one consent, all with one accord, all of them just alike, all with one consent, they began to make excuses. And I checked the excuses out, and the excuses are sort of flimsy, aren't they? I mean, they're not, they're almost comedic. And uh, they all with one ex- with one consent, began to make their excuses, flimsy excuses that you can see through. I know I am an expert on excuses. After 52 years pastoring a Baptist church in Florence, South Carolina, you think, I, I sometimes think I've heard them all. And in the next hour, some bird comes up with another one, you know, So I know about excuses, and I can spot excuses here. And the first guy in verse number 18 says, I bought land, and I need to go see it. Wait a minute. You're that guy that bought the Brooklyn Bridge? You're that guy that would buy a piece of real estate, and you haven't seen it? You don't know anything about it? It's before the Internet, so you couldn't go and see it virtually. And so you paid for a piece of land? Man, you're either lying to me or you're a pretty foolish fellow. You bought a piece of ground and you've never seen it. And now you're telling me you don't have time to come to the banquet that you initially were very open to. And then in verse 19, there's a second fellow. Even worse. I've bought five yoke of oxen and I need to go try them. You bought five yoke of oxen. That's ten oxen. Are they alive or are they dead? You haven't been there to see them. You haven't scoped them out. Can they plow? Are they so old and crippled that somebody's just hanging them on you? You can see how 
flimsy, <laughs> how ridiculous these excuses. And the third guy, he's really the funny one. I've married a wife. I've married a wife, and I can't come. I mean, uh, uh, you, are you ever going to leave her for two or three hours? <laughs> Why don't you bring her with you? You see, you can shoot through that in just a heartbeat, can't you? But when people want to find an excuse, they can find one, can't they? A fellow one time said, uh, I want to invite you, his friend to a church. And the friend said, I can't come. And they kind of got into the baby. And he said, why can't you come? He said, I got milk in the refrigerator. He said, you got milk in the refrigerator? What does that got to do with coming to church? He said, nothing. But if you're making up a lie, one thing's as good as another. And, you know, I think that that little silly story probably illustrates it. Sometimes we hear excuses that are just that flimsy. And how does it affect the master? Look in verse 21. The master's angry. It upsets him. He is, he is in consternation about this because their rejection of his invitation after he had already prepared it for them, after they had initially indicated that they would come, well, that's an insult. That's an insult, to, and particularly in that culture I've read. And to reject his invitation was a show of contempt. It, it, was, it, it was a way to disrespect the man. And there was a further thing involved in that, and that was that this man had paid, what, hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars to prepare this beautiful banquet for the, his friends, and they're making up these flimsy excuses, and he's now going to be hung with the price, a, a substantial amount of money. They're not thinking about that when they give him these flimsy excuses. I want you to notice something else about their excuses the reason that people reject the gospel, the reason that the people reject the plan of salvation even today. You, you notice that what they focused on and what they used for their excuses are, are not evil things. They're not bad things. The guy isn't saying, hey, I'm not even going to be sober that day. He's not saying that. What, they're really, what their problem is is their focus is upon things that are not wrong, things that uh, very basically would be in and of themselves good things, but they're using them as an excuse, really as a, a fabrication, as a, as a lie to break the promise that they had previously made. And so they're not, they're not saying, I can't come because I'm going to do bad things, but they're letting otherwise good things keep them from the best things. I don't have time, first excuse. Boy, people say that today. I don't have time to live for the Lord. And other people say, well, I have a business, the five yoke of oxen. I'm a farmer. I've had people tell me, I just don't have time to go to church. I don't have time to get into that kind of thing, Pastor. I run a business. I've had, and then here's the man who says, I've married a wife. I need time with my family. Boy, on this Father's Day, God bless you men who are here. And don't ever use your family as an excuse to not serve the Lord. 
Use your family as the reason to serve the Lord if you can't think of a better reason, and I doubt that you can because there are little people following you along the path of life, and what they do and what they see in you will make such a profound difference. I'm up in years, and yet there was a man named Frank Monroe who God placed in my life as my father. And boy, sometimes my dad and I did not get along. Sometimes he made me mad and I made him madder. Sometimes there was a clash, but we got over it. But looking back on my life, my life was shaped. My life was directed by Frank Monroe more than any other person. When that kid holds that sign and said, he's my hero, you really are. That's not empty rhetoric. You are shaping those lives. Don't ever use your family for an excuse to not serve God. A man here in the church, not, and they're not too recent past, 90 days ago, this man got a burden for the people that he worked with. He wanted to be the servant, spoken of in the parable. He wanted to go out and talk to the people that he worked with because he knew most of them did not know Christ as their Savior. They needed the Lord. He was with them every day. It was pretty easy for him to see their lostness. And so he began to invite them. And he worked at it. I mean, he used every single method that he could think of to invite them, and he went to 20 different people at his work site who told him initially, yeah, I'll go to church with you at the Baptist temple on that particular day. He, he was elated. He came in and he said, man, I'm so excited. 20 people are going to come with me, and most of them I don't think are Christians. And he was excited, and we were excited about him being able to come. And then in the interim period of time, they began to say, oh, something's come up. We can't go with you. I have some business I've got to do. I don't have time. I need to spend some time with my family. Yeah, let me announce it. That's the rain. Now come back here with me, okay? <laughs> I can just see that go over the whole congregation here. So, from the time 20 people told him, yeah, I'll go with you to church until the day of the service, 10 of the 20 had told him, we're not going to be able to go. But he's still so excited because he's got 10 people. He can just see it. He's going to line up a bench full of people. And most of them are lost. And it comes the day, Sunday, the day of the church service, and he's so excited. He comes to church anticipating 10. How many came? One. Was he disappointed? Yeah. Was he still excited? Oh, you bet. Because you see, one, one soul is worth the entire value of the material world. And that one soul was somebody that he cared deeply about and who has shown a real interest in coming to Christ since that day. So he yet may be able to reach a person for Christ. But people have been using ex excuses literally from time immemorial. 
They're still doing it. If you're going to be effective for the Lord, you just can't get disappointed by that. And you can invite people and try to reach people for Christ as the servant here did. And you can get very discouraged because we live in a very hard time to reach people. COVID has made, people, made it more difficult to get to people, to talk to them, to engage with them. I want to encourage you in this message. I want to tell you, don't, don't get discouraged. And there is that one out there who will respond. There are those people who will respond. Now, I want to show you the urgency of the mission here. So go with me now to verse 21. So the servant came and showed his Lord these things, all these excuses. And the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, go. Well, that's the first word of the gospel. That's the first word of good, the first uh, two letters of, of good. That's the first two letters of gold. There's a whole lot of words that come out of that go word, isn't there? So go, action. You have to do something here, servant. Go out quickly. There's an urgency here. And I want you to go to the streets and lanes of our city. The streets are the big thoroughfares. That's... Uh, Irby Street, that's Palmetto Street, that's the main streets. The lanes are the little, the little streets that come off of, of the main thoroughfares. And I want you to go and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. Now, he's speaking literally to his servant, but let's look at those. Bring in the poor spiritually, the people who don't have any coin in the realm. They don't have any knowledge of God, whatever. They're spiritually broke, if you will. And the maimed, those are the people who have been hurt by life, who have been crippled, who are handicapped. The halt, those who can't walk, who can't walk spiritually, who can't walk with the Lord, they don't know Him. And the blind, the people who are blind to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to go and find those people. By the way, those four categories of people, the Pharisees in their condescension, their self-righteousness, their arrogance, they look down their nose at, those, at poor people. They look down their nose at the, at the blind and the halt and the handicapped and the people that had had a hard time in life. And the, the servant says, if the people who are the, the middle-class people, the people who are the haves, if they won't listen, let's go to the have-nots. But let's get the people. Let's don't let the supper go to waste tonight. And so he goes out and he does just that. And in verse 22, he comes back and he says, Lord, it's done as you have commanded. And yet there's room. There's room is what he says. And so in verse number 23, notice what the master does. He sends him out again. The work of the servant is never done. The servant doesn't say, well, we went out and we tried, but all those people made a bunch of excuses. No, the servant keeps on going. The Holy Spirit keeps on going. And this time the master says, let's, let's widen the circle. Let's extend our influence, if you will. In fact, by the time Jesus came along, the influence had been extended to the uttermost parts of the earth. Everybody was to be included in it. And 
they go out looking for more of these unclean people in the eyes of these Pharisees. I want you to notice a phrase there in verse number 23, and I hope you'll underline it in your Bible, but more, I hope you'll get it in your heart. Compel them out there in the highways and hedges, the rural areas, out there in the county, outside the city. Compel them to come in, he says. Now, when I use the word compel, I don't want you to misunderstand that word because some people in the past in some religions have taken the word compel to mean uh, it, it meant to use force. We know that even today, the way that Islam makes its converts is really at the edge of the sword and that throughout history, Muslims have made their, con their converts by going into countries taking over politically, and using the sword. Converts by the sword was the term of history. And you either become a Muslim or you get your head sliced. That's not what compel in the words of the Lord Jesus meant. It doesn't mean to use high pressure. It doesn't mean to push people to the point that they don't ever want to talk to you again about it. It certainly doesn't mean to manipulate them through the years, I've been a pretty good student, I think, of preaching, and I study preachers, and I've watched preachers, even, even preachers that I had a great respect for, but sometimes we get caught up in the moment. We're so passionate about people's salvation, and I've watched them sort of manipulate people and try to use uh, a, a lot of extreme emotion and things like that to do anything to just get people to come. And I want people to come. Oh, how I want people to come. But when you come, I want it to mean something. You're not just coming because I put the pressure on you. And that's what he says here. Compel them. What did he mean by compel? To compel people means to try to convince them, to reason with them, to come to grips with them, to close with them, as we say. It means to be persuasive, to use every single technique that we can to persuade men that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven and they must act upon it. To compel people means to press the gospel to people's hearts and to do it again and again and again. And I could stand here all day saying again, and it wouldn't be too much, that we never quit. Some of you have tried to win a friend to Christ several times, and now you're discouraged because they've always given you those excuses. And you just quit. You just, well, they're not going to do it. Don't give up on them, my friend. Don't give up on them. That unsaved child, that prodigal son, that wayward da daughter that you have, oh, no, you don't give up. As long as there's life, there is hope. You keep on going and compelling, loving, persuading, gently, kindly, but don't ever give up on it. We get, so, we, we, we get our passion so drained so quickly. Compel them. Let me tell you why you compel them. You compel them because Satan, the God of this world, had blinded the minds of them that believe not. 
There are people that have heard the gospel all their life, and finally, up in their years, they come to Christ. It was like one day it clicked, and they never really got it until then, but now it clicked. And why did it click? Because finally, they broke through the blindness that Satan has imposed upon their minds. Don't give up on them. You're God's servant. Keep going in spite of the excuses that they give to you. They're deceived the people that don't know Christ. They're deceived. And so they're not necessarily even hungry for the food, the spiritual food of the gospel. They're deceived by their love of sin. And so people say, well, if I became a Christian, I'd have to give up whatever. Let me tell you, when you come to know Jesus, you're not giving up anything. You're taking on the most glorious and wonderful thing you've ever experienced in your life. You're not giving up anything to serve Jesus. You're giving up hell. No, sir, you, they're, they're deceived by their sin, and you keep on until there's a breakthrough, hopefully. Their morality, so many people that you know in your circles are, are moral people. They're good people, they're, but their, their morality, listen to me carefully, their self-righteousness has blinded them to the very need that they have of the gospel. They don't think they need the gospel because they live next door to a Christian. They compare themselves and say, I'm better than, than they are. And their own self-righteousness has blinded them to the fact that they need the Lord and they're not hungry for the gospel. So there's many reasons that people need to be compelled. During COVID, I mean, there were those weeks I stood here and preached to the camera, and it was nobody but three or four of the staff around. And then people started coming back in, and we started having our services here. But there weren't any unsaved people. And to be honest with you, after a while, I would preach gospel messages and give invitations, and I'd look around, and I thought, good night, everybody here has been saved for 40 years. and, And I just... I just kind of quit. And I I know it was the Lord. I I know it was the Holy Spirit. As I have been studying in the last weeks, I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to preach the gospel whether I see an unsaved person in the house or not. Because, one, there's a whole lot of unsaved Christians. There's a whole world of people that think they're saved and they're not saved. Billy Graham said maybe up to 70% of the professing Christians in America have never been born again. So if I don't look around and see a whole world of visitors, does that mean I don't need to preach the gospel of Christ? I'll tell you what the gospel does. I am enjoying preaching this sermon. You know why? There's something about the gospel just refreshes me every time I hear it. You say, what kind of a church do we have? We have an evangelistic Baptist church. That's what we've tried to have since day one. And boy, that's the right kind of church. A church where people can go and bring their families and people can get saved at the church. At the same time, we can still feed the souls of God's people. There's plenty for you to chew on in this message this morning, I promise you. I'll tell you one thing we're not. 
We're not woke. I can tell you something else. We're not. We're not asleep. <laughs> we're awake. And we're awake to the need of men and women and boys and girls for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our guiding flag, if you will, that we're trying to follow right now. And so God has given this invitation to us. Repent of your sins. Believe the gospel. Call upon the Lord, and you can be saved. You can be filled. You that are hungry can be satisfied. You that are thirsty, you can be sustained. The gospel feast is there for you. And the urgency of the mission. Yes, there is still room. There's room at the cross. No matter who you are in this audience this morning, there is room at the cross of Jesus Christ. Picture the cross, and there hangs our Savior, and the blood has stained his body. I stand there, and as I look at him, I say, what is he doing? And the man says, he's dying for the sins of the world. And I look up at him, and when he says that, I'm conscious that I am a sinner. And I look up there at my Savior, dying for my sins, and my heart is broken with love for him, that he cared that much for me. And I change my mind about my sin, about myself, about him. I hear the gospel, and I receive him as my Savior and my Lord Oh, that's the urgency of the mission today. There's room at the cross. But let me tell you something else. There's room at the Baptist temple. I just have to make a very relevant application here. And uh, in this year and plus 15, 16 months now, we're sitting six feet apart. Two weeks from now, we come back together as a church, one service, everybody together, there's still going to be room for you. I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm tired of preaching two services, but I'm not complaining. Let me explain what I mean. I would love to preach two services if we needed them. I just don't like preaching two services to every other row six feet apart where, you know, uh, you really don't need them, but you're doing it for other reasons. But it'll always be my thrill to preach the Word of God but it's going to be so wonderful when we can come back together and I can tell people, though, there's still room at the Baptist temple for you. I was hoping I would hear a thunderous amen and applause would ensue across this auditorium that you really believe there was silence. Do we not care that the building is full? Have we grown so accustomed to be separated that it's okay with us now? I wish I had a bigger sword to stab you with right now on that. No, no, no. We don't want to ever get... I hope your silence is not saying complacent. I hope it's not saying indifference. I hope that we'll say there's never enough. There's room at the cross. There's room at the church. There's room in heaven because in my Father's house there are many mansions, Jesus said, and we want to help him fill them up. Do we not? Christian, I want you to take note of that servant. His obedience to the master, 
He just keeps on going. He's the energizer bunny servant. He just keeps on going. The Christian who says, as long as there's a lost person, I'll be out there looking for them. Now, the worldly Christian will never understand our zeal for souls. The carnal Christian doesn't care about souls. They just blow it off. They're busy with business. They're busy busy with family. They got other things to do with their time. But I want you to understand why we need that zeal for souls that that servant exhibited. And I want to challenge you today, no matter how faithfully you attend this church, no matter how generously you give, no matter how circumspectfully and morally you walk, no matter how eloquently you teach a class, no matter how beautifully you sing, I want to tell you today, Christian, if you're not endeavoring to bring people to Jesus, you're not where you ought to be with God. You're not where you ought to be. His command to every one of us is to go into the world, the highways, the hedges, the streets, the lanes, the business places, the schools, wherever that we go there, and we invite people to the Great Supper. Verse 24 is a verse of warning. Our Lord said, I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. None of those men that were bidden, that were invited, will taste. Do you know what he's saying? If you reject the invitation, you'll be rejected. There's not going to be a second chance. There popular doctrine spreading across America today. Unfortunately, even in, in, in evangelical circles, is called universalism. Universalism is the belief that nobody will ever perish, that ultimately everybody will be saved, that there will be some second chance or third chance after death, but that God is too good to reject anybody who rejects him. It's not true. I hope you never fall for that. The Scripture is very, very clear. And I will tell you, hear me today, dear friend, if you're not a Christian, God put a cross between you and hell. And if you go to hell, you'll have to walk over that cross. You'll have to walk right under the blood that was shed for you as it drips upon you if you choose to reject the invitation to the gospel supper. A great preacher of yesteryear said, and I want you to hear this well. In fact, it's so good, I want to just read it so I don't mangle a single word. A great preacher of yesteryear said this, you're free to choose, but you're not free to not choose. And you're not free to choose the consequences of your choice. So in a sense, your choices choose you. End the quote. I'll read it again. You're free to choose, but you're not free to not choose. The guy who walks out of here today and says, I'm not a Christian, and I'm not going to do it today. I'll do it, maybe, I hope, but 
Not today. You're free to choose. But you're not free to not choose. To not choose is, is to make a choice, isn't it? And you're not free to choose the consequences of the choice that you make. And so, in a sense, our choices choose us. What a profound statement. Who is here today and you've never come to the Gospel Supper? You've never received Christ as your Savior. Or maybe you made a profession sometime in the past, and when you did, it, it didn't make any difference really in your life. It was sort of a nominal thing. You did it because of some other reason. But as you sit here today, you don't really have that peace and that joy inside, that fountain that springs up that says, I am the Lord's and he is mine. I love him and he loves me. I'm following him. I can look at my life. I'm not perfect, but he knows my sincerity. If you don't have that assurance, I want you to come. Stand to your feet with me if you will right now and bow your head, please.